हेलो एवरीवन दिस इज कथक का चक्कर माय नेम इज प्रमित एंड दिस प्लेस इज डिजाइन टू बी अ सेंट्रल प्लेटफॉर्म टू ब्रिंग कॉन्वर्सेशंस विद कथकर्स अक्रॉस द ग्लोब सो टुडे आई हैव विद मी सारा मुरैली जी Dr. Morelli is an associate professor of ethnomusicology at the University of Denver's Lamont School of Music and director of the Surila Academy of Kathak in Denver, Colorado and a and, and a co-founding member of the Leela Dance Collective. Active as a performer and scholar, she trained with two legends of North Indian classical dance performance. No, North Indian classical performance. Sarod Maestro Ali Akbar Khan and Kathak master Pandit Chitresh Das. Her book, Tales of a Modern Guru, Pandit Chitresh Das, and Indian Classical Dance in Diaspora, from the University of Illinois Press, details Pandit Das's many contributions to Kathak. Sarah Ji, how are you? Hi, I'm fine, Pramit. How are you? I'm doing great. I've been really looking forward to this one ever since I started reading your book and everything. So I'm glad we were doing this. And Thank just to you. just to start things off, Sarah Ji, uh, would love to know how did you get into Kathak? Okay. Thank you. Actually, I want to first take a moment just to tell you how much I appreciate the work that you're putting into this podcast. Um, it is. really i think so beneficial not only for those who are interested in kathak from the outside but for us insiders to have this opportunity to speak more in depth about our own philosophies our own histories and trajectories and to get to know more importantly those of other artists you're doing a great service for our community thank you thank you sarji uh, your book has actually helped me be come across as more knowledgeable on the podcast as well <laughs> so that's helped i must say i'm so glad to hear it yeah. <laughs> so how did i get into kathak is the first question yes okay um let me try to make this succinct i know that um some people listening will see my name and note that i'm non indian and um and so i feel like i need to talk a little bit about my journey in terms of my relationship with indian culture and then how that interweaves with my kathak training um it actually was relatively late in life when i got to begin studying kathak i think i was 26 and um i actually was born in the early 70s and um in the united states things were changing in terms of the demographics at that time because in 1965 you you may know this already um there was an immigration and nationality act that repealed an earlier um national act that had basically blocked immigration from asia to the us for almost 50 years so there was a long period of time when there were very very few people who could come from south asia and other parts of asia to the us so um At that time when I was growing up there were a few families from South Asia that were beginning to establish and I actually grew up in like a small place outside of Harrisburg Pennsylvania and uh, my father worked for the state and so we actually moved from elsewhere um but we lived in a small town where 
like pe most people had lived there for many generations. And so um, in some ways we had more in common with other immigrants to the area than with the people who had lived there for many generations. I see. Yeah. And so there were some um, South Asian families and I had friends who were um, basically second generation, right? Growing up in the United States, being born in the United States. So because of that, um, I was meeting um, with my friends who were Indian American, going to their homes and, you know, having food, seeing films being played and getting interested in um, South Asian culture that way. Um, then actually my freshman year in college, I somehow managed to take a class in music of India. It was primarily Hindustani music. And during that course, we actually went down to Philadelphia to Swarthmore College and saw a performance of one of Ali Akbar Khansab's senior disciples, Ken Zuckerman, a Sarod player, as well as the great Zakir Hussain on tabla. And that whole course and that experience just really um, opened my eyes to the richness of Indian classical music and um, inspired me to study abroad in India. However, I actually studied abroad in Madurai, in South Indian Tamil Nadu, where of course Carnatic music is the form of classical music that's taught. I spent about a year in Madurai studying Tamil, taking classes on Indian culture, philosophy, history, religion, and also Carnatic music. I was studying vocal music and also the Veena, um, first with a professor from the College of Music in Madurai uh, named Endevarajan. And then with one of my religion professors, uh, his very talented daughter, whose name is Vaijanti Venkantraban. So then, um, so I was pretty set on continuing my studies in South India, but I wound up in graduate school at Harvard University where there wasn't um, Tamil language being taught. And gradually my interest sort of started going back to the North. I was studying with a brilliant scholar, Carol Babaraki, who um, works on music and dance traditions among Adivasi in Jharkhand. And also I began studying Urdu Hindi with someone named Dr. Ali Asani. And um, during the course of my classwork there, I, uh, I started realizing that it would be very helpful to study Hindustani music in a practical way, even if I wasn't going to be a scholar of Hindustani music, that it would help me tremendously. I had actually aspirations to study folk music traditions in Tamil Nadu at that time. I see. Um, yeah. yeah. And um, however, um, te teaching those classes on rag and thal, on Hindustani music, or even Carnatic music, is kind of a bread and butter type of class for an ethnomusicologist. So, um, so I went to Carol Babaraki and I asked her who I should study from if I wanted to study a little Hindustani music. And um, she gave me lots of names, but then she said, if you really want to understand rag, you should go to George Ruckert. And I thought, <laughs> I was a little startled because that was a non-South Asian name. Right. Um, so I went to uh, find him. He's an ethnomusicologist who was teaching at MIT. And he was a long-term disciple of Ustad Ali Akbar Khan, the great 
uh, Ali Akbar Khansab. I'll just refer to him as Khansab probably while we're talking. Um, and so I started studying with George G. And slowly, as I had these wonderful vocal lessons with him that would go for you know an hour and a half um, weekly, he kind of prodded me in two different directions. One was that he said, you know, you know, Baba's not getting any younger, he would say, <laughs> kind of planting the seed that maybe I should go and study with Kansab. And um, also he said one day, he said, have you ever thought of studying Kathak? <laughs> and I answered, no. <laughs> I had never thought of studying Kathak, but his wife is actually the senior most disciple of Pandit Chitresh Das. Okay. And um, she began her studies in 1972. Um, so many, many years. And she actually still teaches in Boston uh, with a school called Chandika. So I went to a workshop of hers and I was just fascinated. I just enjoyed so much um, the movement that we were doing. As I was growing up, I was both um, an athlete and a musician, but those worlds never came together. And so Kathak was this place that especially I found as I began studying with her Guruji, um, Pandit Chitresh Das, that Kathak just brings things together that are important to me in such um, meaningful and, and deep and profound ways. So the musicality as well as the athleticism, but so much more. So anyway, um, I was still studying with George G and Gretchen G. And um, that idea that I should study with Kansab while he was still alive and teaching uh, was something that really stuck with me. And even though I had planned to do field work for my dissertation back in India, um, I took the, at that time, kind of radical choice to um, go go to California <laughs> instead of India to do my field work. Um, at that time, work in the US diaspora was kind of considered lightweight, right? You're not really going to a place that's foreign, that's difficult, et cetera, et cetera. And therefore you're not necessarily paying your dues as an ethnographer. Um, okay. Of course, I had spent um, more than a year in India but at, at that time, by that time, myself. But my interest really started to be, one, just to study with this great musician while he was still alive and teaching regularly. And two, I was really interested in the dynamics of what seemed like was happening in California. So, you know, I grew up in this very small place in Pennsylvania where there were very few South Asians. And in fact... Um, my friend, my childhood friend, um, Sri Rao, writes in a book that he wrote on, um, on Indian cuisine. He writes about how his mother had to, in the 70s, drive all the way to New York City to buy rice. So that's oh, okay. where we came from, right? Okay. Wow. Um, so from that to what was happening in California was a vastly different experience. In the 1970s and the 80s and the 90s, there was this incredibly alive and rich culture of Hindustani music and Kathak that was flourishing in the San Francisco Bay Area because Ustad Ali Akbar Khansab was there. Um, he founded a school, mm -hmm. 
the Ali Akbar College of Music. And because of that, he could invite so many artists to come and to teach. And so uh, Zakir Hossein came, um, Pandit Swapan Chaudhary came, um, of course, our Guruji came, and so many others. And so it was a real alive space um, for this study. So I also wanted to kind of check out what was going on there. And my idea was to maybe do an ethnography of the school of the Ali Akbar College of Music and look at the interactions that happened in the space of music making, um, um, music as a form of cultural exchange. So I went to California to do my doctoral field work. And because I had been studying both with George G and Gretchen G in um, Boston, I just kept doing that when I was in California and I studied with both of their gurus, right? With Kansab and with Chitresh G. And um, that was fine for a while. Um, but it became more and more difficult the longer I was there and the, the more I studied because, of course, um, studying with masters like them requires so much um, time and attention and effort. And so um, I managed it. I managed actually to study with both of them multiple times a week, almost every week for three straight years, and um, eventually had to go back to Boston to finish my dissertation and to get a job and to do all of those things. Um, but while I was in California, I actually decided to shift the focus of my own studies. So rather than writing about the College of Music, I decided to write about those interactions that I saw taking place on the dance floor and with, um, with our Guruji as the, the leader, the mediator, in this really dynamic and interesting exchange that was happening um, about big questions and about little questions uh, regarding who we were as a community, who our individuals were, how our efforts related to the larger world of Kathak, how it related to issues of diversity in the United States, how it impacted arguments about gender and the roles of women, all of those things, our Guruji was such a, a like a brilliant commentator on his times and used his art in these fascinating ways to, to make um, important statements. Okay, uh, Saraji, I guess my first question as an ex-grad student is, um, since you were there learning from Khan Sahib and Pandit Chitreshdasji while doing your dissertation. To me, that feels like you like drinking from a fire hose. You've been getting <laughs> so much information and keeping up with Riyadh's expectations. So yeah, what? how did you keep up with all of that? I'm just like <laughs> amazed. It was drinking from a fire hose, actually. That's very apt. Um, from two fire hoses, right? Yes. Um, or three, because doing field work itself is this other big practice. Right. Because then you have three people to like answer to, and they all have high expectations, I assume. Yeah. So first of all, my graduate school advisor, Professor mm -hmm. Kate Kaufman Chalamet, was exceedingly patient with me at that mm -hmm. time. Okay. I had gone to California initially planning to be there for three months just to check things out and mm -hmm. see whether there was something that I might use as a, a dissertation. So it was supposed to be like a pilot study. 
Um, and I quickly realized that it didn't make sense to go back. And I ended up staying for three years instead of three months. And I think that there were probably some times when she was worried that I wasn't going to come back. <laughs> right, <laughs> and actually, okay. I questioned that a lot for many times because there was so much I realized that there was to learn. And how can you, even in three years, if you're not doing anything else with your life, that's still far too little time. So um, on one hand, I was extraordinarily fortunate um, that because of grants and such and other support, I didn't have to have a day job while I was in California. Right. Um, but on the other hand, still, it was such a short amount of time. I basically just gave all of myself as much as possible to my studies for that, that time. Um, mm -hmm. And in terms of fieldwork methodology, I think that was good for the type of study that I was doing. Um, in general, the more time we can spend getting to know people and developing real relationships before we you know, ask for interviews, um, it makes a huge difference. And so uh, it was actually relatively late in the period of my being uh, in the Bay Area that I started doing interviews. I started asking our Guruji if I could have a video recorder on during company classes, for example. And I think that all of the time and trust that was developed before that made a huge difference in how much people opened up to me, what they shared. Um, you know, by the time I was doing interviews, I was a member of the community. I wasn't like an outside observer or somebody who was there just to get information and go back and earn a PhD. Okay. Got it. And um, so now that we're talking about a little bit about Pandachachachi, and one of the things I wanted to discuss with you is that, you know, his company in the 70s and 80s and 90s in terms of uh, ethnical makeup and the people who were at attending it was very different over the years from what I've understood reading your book. So uh, based on what you've observed and like putting like teaching Kathak to different ethnicities, to different bodies, what has been the effect of that that you've observed? Okay, that's a great question. Um, so it's a really interesting dynamic, I think. Um, for our Guruji, um, he came to the United States in 1970. Um, he came to California in 1971 and began establishing Kathak in the San Francisco Bay Area. And at that time, it was mostly, he called them his blondes and brunettes. Basically, you know, white American women who were studying with him. Um, there, again, there were very few South Asians in that area even at that time. So, right. um, and of course, this was pre-internet, so knowledge was a little bit more scarce and difficult to obtain. So, people had ideas about what they were getting into when they stepped into his classroom, and oftentimes that those ideas were very dif different than the ideas that he had about what he wanted to do in the classroom. Um, and so there was a very interesting dynamic, even from the very beginning of his teaching, um, him saying, this is Indian classical culture. This is the discipline that I am here to instill. And you know, even today, I would say, when people come into our classes, they don't necessarily know what they're going to get, but people maybe have a little bit of a 
closer idea than that. So there were some really, I think, difficult times in his classroom where um, just setting the expectation for the discipline and um, helping people understand what they had gotten into was a bit shocking. Um, but the really interesting thing about Kathak or any performance practice is that when something is alive in the body, it's mutable, it's um, available to change and adaptation. And so one of the things that I tried to do in my book really was to highlight how the interactions with different generations of students helped to shape this particular style of Kathak, which is recognizably distinct from other schools or other gharanas of Kathak. And, um, and how um, something can maintain tradition in the broadest sense. Our Guruji used to talk about innovating within the ring fence of tradition, which he did. He, in some ways, the style of Kathak that he performed and taught at the end of his lifetime was even more conservative than what he may have come to the US with. Um, but also he evolved and innovated in such fantastic ways. And so just the idea that tradition itself is flexible, even within one generation, even within one person's lifetime is something that's really fascinating to me. Okay, and just uh, and just so I have an idea about this. So you said that there was some when there was that initial shock when energy came in between what Indian culture is and what it's been presented as. So what do you think that what what made the initial batch of students stick around when they realized this is not what they were thought it was? Yeah, um, one you know the force of our Guruji's personality. He was such an incredibly fascinating human being. And, um, and the richness of the tradition itself. I think people might not necessarily have known what they were in store for, but for, for some, when they found out, they just, um, it was um, an eye-opening experience. And some people made the decision to continue this difficult, rich, deep journey of Kathak. And it's the same even today, right? It's the same in our classes. We might get a large batch of classes, but very few of them really are prepared to take the lifelong journey of being a kataka, of um, going through the ups and downs of life with katak as a core central practice in one's life that informs everything else, of taking on the responsibility of the tradition to say nothing of actually going through all of the learning process, which is slow and painstaking and never ending. <laughs> so, um, so then of course, also there were some dancers who decided to dive deep and really commit themselves. And um, right. many, and some of those dancers are still teaching today. Gretchen uh, Hayden in Boston, Joanna D'Souza in Toronto, um, both of them started studying um, in the 70s and 80s and still are practicing and teaching and performing and basically um, following the um, following the path that was laid for, forth for them by our Guruji. Understood. And 
that actually helps understand and so now and now coming to this uh, could you tell us a little bit about your personal connection with pandit chitrasashi <laughs> sure um so i first met him in boston um i had only been taking kathak for a couple of months or a few months and i think i was still coming at kathak from a musician's perspective actually that kept going for a long time um and i was taking kathak because it would help my laikari my sense of time as a musician so i was doing movement in order to be a better musician <laughs> not taking kathak for its own purposes and i remember that we had right. this very intensive workshop with guruji that um it's something i would later just expect of his style of teaching but somehow he could motivate dancers to push beyond what they thought possible um and he often would teach very mixed group um where you'd have like almost brand new beginners along with people who have been studying for much longer and somehow he manages to push everybody to um a point of intense learning so sarji had a question here real mm -hmm. quick because so, uh, you mentioned this in the beginning of your book so i have an idea of the intensity a little bit but could you tell us what when you say he taught a very intensive workshop what does that look like could you paint us a picture <laughs> of that um sure he was always pushing you and your boundaries of what you feel is possible either okay. physically or in terms of your mental and emotional limitations. So okay. if he's not shouting and coaxing and urging you on to dance more and more strongly and with more effort and energy, then as you're basically panting, <laughs> catching your breath, sometimes sometimes trying not to throw up, you know, like for long distance runners, sometimes there's that oh. nausea that happens. not okay. just from multiple turns but actually from pushing the body in terms of the endurance then was the time that he would go into lecture mode and he would start to challenge your thoughts about your own limitations so either you were physically being pushed or mentally and emotionally being pushed and kind of all all wrapped up in something that we just call a dance class <laughs> which is okay. a very unfortunate term because it doesn't really give you any sense of the intensity that's happening at that time okay got it and uh, yeah I, i think we went on a bit of a tangent but i wanted to get an idea of the workshop sure. but did you finish your thought train of thought when it comes to your personal connection with pandit ji uh no probably not thanks for getting okay. us back on so so then i went to california and um and it was amazing really to study with both kansab and with our guruji um The one thing that I really appreciated always about our Guruji was the deep respect um and the deep influence of Ustad Ali Akbar Khan Saab on our Guruji's art. Um he was incredibly inspired by Khan Saab's music and set many of Khan Saab's compositions to dance. He worked with so many of the musicians um trained by Khan Saab over the years. and so that's a huge part of our style um in each kathak school right there's music music is such an important element as well and for our style of kathak ali akbar kansab's um way of making music is just infuses our sensibilities and so for me it was a really amazing 
um, connection to be able to study with both of them at the same time. Um, and our Guruji was really um, very generous with me um, in that he allowed me so many ways to come in and be a part of the dance community. So really early on, I actually started playing Sarod for company classes much, much earlier than I would physically be able to be dancing in that company class. I would sit with my Sarod next to Guruji or behind him sometimes if he was standing and playing tabla and get okay. to be a part of, get musically to be a part of these incredibly intensive rehearsals mm -hmm and to learn more about his philosophy and his style that way. One of the things that um, enticed me and intrigued me so much was how, um, how fully musical our Guruji was. Everything about his dance was infused with musicality, including the fact that he would most often play tabla while he led class while standing and doing footwork at the same time. So that's a little bit of um, a window into the practice that he started calling Katak Yoga, that we call Katak Yoga now. The way that he teaches, we are reciting and singing and dancing all at the same time, all the time. One cannot be a quote unquote dancer in his school without being confronted with having to be a musician at the same time. Those two things are not mutually exclusive at all. Okay, and I'm glad you brought up Kathak Yoga and let, do want to get more into it. Because I think one of the things I find the most fascinating about it is that it's not just uh, Pandit Chitreshta Dasji who can do it and his senior disciples and you and the Leela. It's like, all the students are able to do it as well. And the fact that you're able to teach it, I find very impressive. So could you tell us a little bit about how it's taught in the schools? Yes, definitely. So first of all, Kathak yoga is an approach to Kathak, right? It's a practice. It's a way in which you interact with and work with dance materials. So it's not a repertoire. <laughs> <laughs> you so what's, can, sorry, sorry, what's the difference between a repertoire and an approach? So a repertoire, like, like a composition or um, some choreography, right? It's not right. a set thing that you learn. It's a way of approaching um, anything. So you can do Kathak yoga even with very basic dance Kathak elements. Um, okay. Kathak yoga is the practice of... Um, taking the musical elements, the rhythmic elements and the melodic elements and interweaving them with movement, right? So um, yoga, um, the root word yug, meaning to yoke or unite, right? The discipline practice that unites all of the elements of Sangeet. Um, and Sangeet, sometimes people say instrumental, vocal and movement. Um, in our school, we say rhythm, melody, and movement. <laughs> so those elements of uh, rhythm, we actually recite teka of, of whatever thal we're working in. So like the teka of din thal, da, din, din, da, da, din, din, da, da, din, din, da, da, din, din, da, da, right? We are reciting right. the teka while we're singing a nagma or a lahara, right? So we're also singing a melody that reinforces the rhythmic cycle 
And then dancing anything, <laughs> whatever we're dancing from very simple tatkar to the most complex compositions, sometimes adding expression and bhao to your kathak yoga, um, sometimes adding an instrument. So all of those ways of approaching kathak yoga means that it's a practice that you can continue to hone and develop through your life, just as with kathak more generally, it's a lifelong pursuit, right? There's no end, there's no perfection, there's no finish line. It's um, such a rich practice and a deep practice. And in the same way, when we approach kathak through also integrating singing and recitation, you, um, what I find is I have a much deeper relationship with the material. So I'm not just dancing to a teka or to a nagma, whether you're using an app or whether you're fortunate enough to have live musician at that time, but you actually producing that material yourself while you are dancing makes for this incredible experience we had talked, I think, briefly, Pramit, you and I, about the idea of like rubbing your belly and patting your head at the same time. And right. I just quickly said, no, no, it's not like that. It's not mm -hmm. like that because these elements are, are integrated, right? You're not trying right. to multitask. You're not trying to do two different things at the same okay. time. You're trying okay. to expand your awareness and mm -hmm. integrate the multiple aspects of katak to such an extent that you can actually produce all of them yourself. And because of that, um, one of the things it does is um, for some people, it leads to a state of, you could say, heightened awareness. Um, I remember speaking to one Katak dancer, a student, a young, younger student, who um, once upon a time kind of tearfully expressed to me how she was struggling with obsessive compulsive disorder. And um, her therapist said, try meditation, right? So she mm -hmm. sit <laughs> and try to meditate and that she could not let go of those thoughts which were plaguing her. And they said, okay, maybe right. add some body movement. That might help. So try mm -hmm. yoga. So just regular hatha yoga. She said still her mind wasn't engaged enough and it kept going to that point of fixation. And then honestly, with tears in her eyes, she said, as I, I'm starting to learn Kathak yoga, those are the only moments where I have relief because I'm dancing, I'm singing, I'm reciting, and my whole body and mind and spirit is completely engrossed and engaged in right. what I'm doing at the moment. Mm -hmm. So it takes you, it forces you into a place of being in the present in okay. the present moment. And of course, if your mind starts wandering, if you're, if you're you know, trying to learn something new, your mind starts wandering, your Kathak yoga is probably gone. <laughs> mm. So it's a way to, um, to practice um, Kathak in such, uh, such an integrated, full mind, body, spirit way that, mm -hmm. um, that there's that yogic aspect of getting away from the ego of me, 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 what do I want to eat? What do I want to this? What do I want to that? But also I, I would say that it has an ex extraordinarily powerful um, um, way of helping students to understand 
how their dance integrates with music, right? So if right. you are, if you're singing yourself, if you're mm -hmm. reciting Teka yourself and you're doing Tatkar, you're going to know very quickly when you mm -hmm. deviate, <laughs> when you're going yes. too fast or too slow. There's no oh, yeah. hiding, right? <laughs> yes, you can't just wait for the next beat. You just know that, okay. Okay, I messed up. <laughs> yeah. Start again. You can't so, auto-tune yourself. Yeah, so we actually have students begin singing Nagma, reciting Teka very early on, doing very, very basic things, even before we tell them necessarily that, oh, this is Kathak Yoga, and this is a oh. practice that was developed by our Guruji. It's just an okay. approach to learning now. Hmm. Yeah, but our Guruji, I have to say, developed this to such an incredibly high level in which he could, you know, play tabla like one chand, do something else with his feet while singing and dancing. And sometimes, of course, expressing characters, pulling a veil, you know, as he's like pounding out footwork and the challenge okay. being how gracefully and how delicately could he move his hands and mm. continue to show the subtlety of Radha all while maintaining these other elements as well. Um, it's a very beautiful way of digging deep into the elements of the tradition in a, a new way. Um, and one more thing I want to add about this. Sure. The beauty of Kathak Yoga in one of the aspects of Kathak Yoga that I find extraordinarily interesting is that this innovation came out of necessity of being in the diaspora, of being okay. in a place where um, you couldn't just, you know, clap your hands and have five tabla players ready for a Riyaz session. <laughs> <laughs> there right. weren't many tabla players around at that time. And mm -hmm. so our Guruji found that he was playing tabla in his own classes. Mm -hmm. And for many years he was sitting. But then, um, then he started to play teka and try to show with footwork what he wanted the dancers to do, right? So he had two things going on right. and then found, oh, this is a very interesting practice. Okay. And so it was out of necessity and curiosity mm -hmm. that this practice developed into this like very high level technique that you see today. Okay, understood. And Saraji, like in your studies, have you found uh, similar parallel practices developed by other people who had similar, um, uh, yeah, similar constraints, or they just came up with this on their own in their own time? Is that have that? Is that something you've come across? Um, s similar, I, I didn't quite understand the question. I guess so, so in the sense of, have you found other gurus kind of independently coming up with the idea of doing footwork and tabla at the same time because of similar constraints or this is like kind of limited to. I think this is a very unique thing and somebody okay. might come across and say, no, you know, this dancer was doing this. And, you know, there are practices that mm -hmm. are very similar. Of course, there okay. are always people coming up with kind of similar ideas in very different moments in very different places. Mm -hmm. okay. um, and there are definitely like some tabla players that will like sing the nagma as they're playing a composition or reciting right. Teka while they're playing a composition. There are many ways okay. of practicing like multi-musicality that go right. on that actually really interest me. Um, the bowel tradition, for example, you mm -hmm. have one person singing, playing Ektara, maybe playing a Dugi, playing um, 
some gungru at the same time, and they're being very mm-hmm. musical in multiple ways at the same time. Interesting. Right? Okay. Um, so I'm really interested in what happens in the mind um, when someone in, is engaging at multiple levels in music, I musical see. and dance practice. Okay. And so just so I'm, I understand, for something to be Kathak Yoga, you'd have to speak it, do something with your hands and do something with your feet, roughly speaking? Roughly speaking. Sometimes we do Kathak Yoga where we're just reciting teka and dancing mm-hmm. okay. or like singing a song. So we wouldn't necessarily be reciting teka at the same okay. time. Okay. Playing flute, right? You can't recite teka at the same time. Mm. There are a couple of dancers who play bansuri very beautifully and mm-hmm. dance. Um, but right. it's generally that approach of bringing in musicality as well as dance. Okay. And I guess uh, one of the things I'm curious about is if the dancers themselves are producing the music and the percussion, uh, how do accompanying artists help in the performance? How do, where, <laughs> where do they come into the equation when they see that this is happening? Um, actually, it's, it's now Kathak Yoga has become a staple of... Um, the Kathak solos in our karana. So there's always this moment in a solo where we graciously bow to the musicians and thank them and they take a break. You know, they still are sitting on the (laughs) dais, but they are watching, um, watching us do all of this all at once. Okay. I mean, of course, the music itself is much simplified when it's only mm-hmm. one person doing all right. of it at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, however, it's it's a really, like I've said, it's a very, very powerful practice. Okay. So um, just to follow up on this, so, so, so say in these performances where Kathak Yoga is the staple, how do accompanying artists and the dancers share the stage in terms of having solos? How does that back and forth work? Um, can you say that again? Sure. Uh, in the sense, like, so say if the accompanying artists are on stage and the dancers are doing Kathak Yoga, is there like a back and forth when the musicians are doing their solos and the dancers are doing their solos and they come together? How does... Okay, so usually, like, in the in the context of a traditional Kathak solo, Kathak Yoga will be a small portion. I mean, for okay. one, Kathak okay. Yoga is, um, is a bit heady. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it doesn't doesn't always translate very well to the audience. It's mm-hmm. it's still um, a work in progress, I would say. There actually are more full-length performances that um, we do um, as the Leela Dance Collective and previously the Chitresh Das Dance Company um, entirely in Kathak Yoga. For example, the production Shabd which toured um, through India as well as in the United States was performed many times. And that is a a full piece, a long piece that is entirely Kathak yoga. But if it's in the context of a traditional Kathak solo, quote unquote, traditional Kathak solo, maybe the Kathak yoga piece will be like seven minutes. And then the musicians are there, they're interacting with us by keeping tal, maybe with their hands, by, you know, being a, a gracious, um, audience member at that moment and taking note of when some happens and um, maybe giving words of encouragement like va and such. Um, but just those are moments where there is less interaction. Then, of course, when um, we are doing other performance pieces where 
tabla, sitar, sarod, voice, etc., are part, then of course there's so much interaction that happens between all of the artists. That's such an integral aspect of the tradition, of course. Awesome. And kind of like my last question on Kathak Yoga, and then we'll move into something else. Because I've seen a lot of instruments being used. Mm -hmm. So can you give us an example? Like, uh, yeah, can you just tell us as to the breadth of like instruments that are used in terms of the harmonium, the cymbals, like how many ways do people usually (laughs) branch out in? I think the limitation is on um, us in terms of our skills and um, our curiosity. Mm -hmm. So um, many people now play harmonium and you've probably seen, especially Rachna Nivas who developed that practice to a high level. Um, Then of course, Manjira, we play manjira and dance even in classes. So um, students that are a bit more advanced will start to add playing manjira to their kathak yoga practice. Um, As I mentioned, Bansuri, actually it was my birthday last week and one of my students, Carrie McCune, came to me from um, the University of Denver. So she began in my ensemble here in Denver and now is a part of the Leela Dance Collective, but she's trained as a professional trumpet player and um, plays in funk bands and, and jazz bands and such. Um, I've always teased her to play um, trumpet while she's dancing Kathak and it's not something that she wants to do, but for my birthday, she played mm-hmm. happy birthday on trumpet along with footwork, which what? was a very oh, happy, wow. happy okay. thing for me. So she's just been like saving it for you and just saying, now nah, I won't do it but while <laughs> secretly practicing this whole time. I think Amazing. she prefers to play another instrument because it, she mm-hmm. says it reminds her of marching band too much. Okay. Understood. Understood. Okay. But so it's just our limitations really of um, hmm. imagination because uh-huh. it's a broad approach. There are so many ways I've had students just play piano. Um, mm-hmm. I've had students play electric guitar even harp. I have a student who um, is, again, a graduate of our School of Music in harp performance and has a harp that's big enough on a stand that she can do tatkar and play at the same time. Wow. Okay. Okay. Wow. Okay. Interesting. Because when I asked you these questions, I didn't even know how far it was going to go. I thought it was just <laughs> harmonium and this and that because that's all I'd seen. But that's really interesting. And yes, since you did mention Rashna Ji, I, yeah, that uh, that piece where she just goes to the harmonium and you know what's coming, you know what's coming, but she builds it up so well and then she starts playing and her reactions and the, she absolutely nails that scene. It's amazing to see. I'm glad you think so. I keep going back to it. Cool. And uh, yeah, so I guess since you talked about the Leela Dance Collective, it'd be a good time to go into that. Could you tell us about what the Leela Dance Collective is and what it does? Yeah, I'm happy to. So um, our Guruji passed away very suddenly at the age Mm -hmm. of 70. A lot about his life seems more like legend than fact, because if you look back at it, it's it's unreal. Um, He always talked about performing at the age of 70. He wanted to perform with Jason Samuel Smith, who is a great tap dancer um, with whom our Guruji had a very long collaboration in the form of the production India Jazz Suites. 
And there's also a documentary on their relationship and on their long collaboration uh, called Upaj Improvise. And it's actually available on, I think it's on Amazon, uh, maybe on Netflix now. Yeah, it's on Amazon Prime. Oh, good. Um, So that's actually available now without pay. So please check it out if you haven't, those who are listening. Um, It's a really remarkable story. Uh, because they began their journey together as artist collaborators when Jason was relatively young. Um, Jason was 26, our Guruji was 62. And however, they both had a similar approach to respecting elders, to the tradition itself, to the idea of improvisation over choreography and spontaneity and deep, deep practice. Um, as a way of life. And so their, their work was really important, um, both for the Kathak community as well as the TAP community because um, their relationship has spawned a lot of relationships between um, Kathak artists and TAP dancers, including a collaboration called Speak um, with uh, Rina Mehta, Rachna Navas, along with um, with tap artists, female tap artists, Dormisha Sambri Edwards, and um, and others. So this has been a really important um, uh, relationship. So our Guruji would always say, "If I can only dance on my seventieth birthday with Jason," he had that in his mind, and somehow magically. <laughs> um, the opportunity arose, in fact, for them to dance on his 70th birthday as um, the introduction to a, um, a screening of Upaj, of the documentary Upaj. And then he passed away um, very soon thereafter, um, almost two months after that. So we were left somewhat in a state of shock, even though he talked a lot about his death and what would we do individually and collectively following his death. He talked about his death a lot. Um, Mainly I thought to give us the perspective on how to move forward and how to take the tradition forward. So he was very, very um, concerned with legacy, with how the art form would continue in this gharana past his lifetime. And um, almost exactly a year later, um, five of us came together to talk about um, how we wanted to individually and collectively advance the art and work together to support ourselves and to also support the next generations. So we just came together to remember his passing and to think about the future of Kathak for our lineage. And what came out of that weekend was the Leela Dance Collective. Um, What I find really inspiring about this group is that we are working together. We are no longer working in the Guru Shishya Parampara model in which one guru is kind of at the center as the artistic director and the the sole kind of representative who's then pushing um, forward the next generations. But we're we're working as a team and we're working in the spirit of collaboration to um, continue to further this uh, wonderful 
tradition and karana. Okay. And so a follow up on that, how do you collab? In what ways do you collaborate while still, I guess, maintaining your own individuality? It's a really interesting dynamic. And you should absolutely ask my uh, guru sisters as well this question. Um, one would think that, you know, um, how do you create something with too many cooks in the kitchen, right? <laughs> <laughs> and sometimes it right. can be that situation where there's like just too many um, um, perspectives coming to a situation. So often we'll say, okay, these, these few people are going to take the lead as this piece is being choreographed or this piece is being developed. These folks are going to take the lead, mm -hmm. but we'll take your advice after the fact. Um, because choreography often happens in real time with real bodies. Um, not right. just this abstract idea of, okay, I'm going to have that half do this movement, that half do that movement as you're visualizing. No, you have to have the people in the room. So often we'll have um, a few people who are the main cooks at a particular time. And it really emerges in a very organic way. So for example, the um, full-length dance drama, Son of the Wind, um, which was mainly conceived and choreographed by my three guru sisters, um, Sebi Lee, Rachna Navas, and Rina Mehta. And I was in the, the, um, on the dance floor watching this happen and being part of this happening um, for the many months that it took to put this production together and develop it. And in our Guruji style and that of many other dancers, of course, I'm sure, um, a, a production is never finished. <laughs> so we get to a point of producing. And then the next time we're asked to stage the same, quote unquote, same production, it's an opportunity to revisit and revise and to push that production for, uh, forward even more. So our Guruji was never satisfied with, okay, this is set. How could he always continue to improve? How could he always continue to push himself, push the dancers? Um, so we, we continue in that mindset. And we have staged um, Son of the Wind multiple times now. Um, one of the interesting things about a dance drama like that, uh, Son of the Wind is based on the Ramayan, as you would imagine, is based on the character of Hanumanji and Hanuman's role in helping to rescue Sita and ultimately defeat Ravan. And um, so each one of us play one of the characters. So there is definitely an individuality that we all bring um, to our own roles. And even though there may be a few who are, who are artistic directors, all of us have a voice in this conversation. Awesome. And uh, that kind of brings me to my next question, since you mentioned all of you. And one of the things you've mentioned once before in our earlier conversations is that the four of you kind of come close to Pandit Chitresh Dasji. Um, and could you tell me a little bit about what aspects each of you have that you, that made you say this? Oh, so I don't think I said come close. <laughs> but okay, yeah. I might have said that each one of us... Um, resonated with and have certain strengths that help amplify some of the aspects of our Guruji's work. Okay, yeah. Um, okay, my bad. But yes, <laughs> no, that's, that's what I was getting to. <laughs> um, I don't know. It's it's hard to 
say it very directly, but there is a kind of magic in seeing how each person will amplify aspects. It's like um, different facets of a gem, right? Um, for myself, I, I tend to really focus and gravitate towards, as you can imagine, um, the musicality and the relationship of music and dance. Um, also, I'm a professor, so I tend to break things down and try to explain things in very systematic ways. I think that's maybe in some ways a little unfortunate for my students because that's not at all how our Guruji taught, right? right? He was pure inspiration and following his um, his amazing lead. And so we were challenged not only to try to do the things he was asking us to do, but also figure out how to do. We, we weren't spoon fed. And so we became a lot stronger for that. Um, I tend to really break things down, like I said, and maybe do too much spoon feeding. That's where some of my Guru sisters come in who are very good at the inspiration and the push um, that's needed. I tend to have a kind of a soft touch in my teaching and sometimes people need a little bit more of that kind of forceful energy. Um, but I would say also Sebi Lee is one of our amazing teachers. She has focused so much of her energies as a kataka on the pedagogy and has really developed um, very strongly in crafting the next generations of dancers. Um, yeah, I think I'm gonna leave it there because um, it gets it just gets tricky to say, um, say things so straight out. But I would say that each one of us has really important facets of his energy and his strength. Understood. And so then my next question, because we've talked about, you've talked about your gharana a bit. And one of your productions is called the California Gharana. Could you tell mm -hmm. us what your gharana is about and what are its specialities or the stylizations that make it unique? Yeah. So... Um, some people listening might be surprised even to hear the idea of a California gharana, right? Um, this is yeah. a fairly new idea. Um, we are mostly familiar with the Lucknow gharana and the Jaipur gharana and, you know, lesser known Benares and Raigarh gharanas. Um, mm -hmm. But one of the things that I find really interesting, um, some scholars note like um, an ethnomusicologist, Daniel Newman, that the idea of gharana um, developed fairly recently. He argues it developed in the 19th century and it first came into use by solo musicians in the 20th century. So very recently, um, he argues that that was mainly because artists were coming into contact with one another and with audiences that were not familiar to them with the railway system and with travel becoming easier. And so the use of the, of the word gharana was a way to index your artistic lineage. Um, so it was a fairly new way of talking about artistic practice, but because it emphasized these lineages of ancestry and discipleship that of course were much longer, um, it quickly seemed like a very old concept. Um, but gharana itself, of course, not everyone always agrees on you know, whose approach is characteristic of a particular gharana. 
of whether a particular artist's interpretations might fall within the parameters of their karana or not, right? These are things that we discuss and debate all the time. Um, so even the question of whether something is a karana or not is up for debate. And it's basically um, what most people will think that, um, that determines whether something becomes a karana or not. Um, some will say it takes three generations to develop a garana. And so right now, I think the idea of a California garana is still in flux because we have yet to see completely whether there is like that third generation who's representing. On one hand, you could say that, yes, there definitely is because, for example, Gretchen Hayden has been teaching for so many years and she has now um, very serious students and uh, student dancers who are now teaching in their own right. So we have multiple generations happening like uh, Anjali Nath and Shefali Jane mm -hmm. in Boston. Um, but still, I think we're still in this crucial stage of whether whether there is actually a California Garana. I mean, these the idea of Garana is, is really an abstract category. So, um, so we shall see, but there's definitely particular ways in which people move within this garana that make it unique. Um, one is the approach of Kathak yoga. One is um, the styles of chakras that we take in this garana. Um, and some of it is actually more difficult to articulate. If you look at a dancer who is trained in the California Karana, you can see, oh, you know, that person must be a descendant of <laughs> the teaching of Pandit Chitresh Das, but it might be hard to pinpoint exactly why, how we hold our elbows um, when we're in second hastak, for example, um, uh, the particular um, repertoire, of course. So in the production California Karana, what we do is highlight a lot of the repertoire of our Guruji and um, and and show that that journey of how this Garana developed in this essentially um, new way through the diasporic experience. Okay, and since we talked about a production, Saraji, I just want to touch upon like your performance career and just get into that a little bit in terms of. The, the times you've performed, what have been like your memorable, most memorable experiences and anecdotes you want to share? <laughs> oh, thanks. Um, wow, there's so many. Um, yep. I think I have to start by talking about participating in my Guruji's performances. Yes. Yeah. Even when I moved to Denver um, or when I was in Boston, I would fly to San Francisco for every single performance of our Guruji and home season performance of the Chitresh Das Dance Company. And okay. most of the time I was so fortunate, I would be you know, on the rug, as we say, providing musical support of one form or another. And it was really the best seat in the house. So getting to sit there and watch Jason Samuel Smith and our Guruji um, just improvise like crazy um, right in front of my eyes was amazing. Um, but one of my favorite of those performances had to be our Guruji's solo in 2008 in San Francisco called Master of Tradition. 
many of the videos that accompany my book of our Guruji are taken from that one solo. And that, that concert included many other great artists, um, Abhijit Banerjee, Tabla, Bhavani Shankarji, Pakawaj, the beautiful voice of Shweta Javeri, and um, always Jayanta Banerjee, Jayanta Da, who's a sitarist and composer. He collaborated with our Guruji for many, many years and now uh, works closely with us as um, um, the Leela Dance Collective, as well as many other of our Guruji's disciples and senior students. That performance was just magical. Um, as a soloist, I think my favorite performance thus far has to be performing at the Continuum Festival in San Francisco. That was a multi-day festival of basically up and coming artists, people um, like, like us whose gurus may be either very senior or even might have recently passed away who aren't necessarily now, we aren't senior artists, but hopefully are on the path to that space. Um, so it was a wonderful place and space to provide um, a platform for these up and comers. Um, musicians for that festival included um, Samarth Nagakar, Raginder Singh Momi, Jay Gandhi, uh, Saili Oak, who is a disciple of Dr. Ashwini Bide, uh, Nilan Chaudhary, son of Pandit Swapan Chaudhary, and um, also many dancers who are trained by our Guruji, including Leela Dance Collective co-founder Sadie Lee, Rachana Nivas, Rina Mehta, and others like Seema Mehta, who's based in Mumbai, Shafali Jain in Boston. And one of the things that was amazing about that festival is that we were each given the space to present a full solo. So not you know five, 10 minutes like many festivals, but we each had 45 minutes to an hour um, with live musicians, those of us dancing um, wow. from India, actually, these amazing uh, musicians that we work with regularly, like, of course, Jayanto uh, Banerjee and um, Devashish Sarkar, Devashish, uh, sorry, Devashish Sarkar, who very recently passed away, um, Satya Prakash Mishra, um, and Ben Kunin, who's a disciple of Ali Akbar Khansab. We were really, really lucky to have the support to present in this way and also to just drink in <laughs> the, um, the skill and the beauty of um, these other artists who are working hard. Um, as a member of the Leela Dance Collective, I would say my favorite performance thus far was the final performance of Son of the Wind that we gave before COVID lockdowns changed things so much. Right. Um, that last performance was um, last September at the Ford Amphitheater in Los Angeles, and it was just a perfect night. It was a full audience of a thousand seats, a beautiful outdoor location, a full mo moon rose behind the stage as the performance was taking place, and the energy was just so incredible. Um, we had such a stellar lineup. Again, um, Kalinath Mishraji joined us from Mumbai, his son Satya Prakash, Jayanta Dal was there, Ben Kunin, and um, having um, Pandit Devashish Sarkar. Um, that was the last performance that we were able to uh, experience with him. He was a renowned vocalist. He worked with 
our Guruji for so many years and for us, and he was so widely respected in um, Kathak and Odissi dance communities. We are going to miss him. He just passed away recently. Um, I would have to say though, as a teacher in the Denver area and the creator of a local Kathak community, I really love every single performance that I get to experience with students. It is such an important aspect of the journey, though in our school, we really do not emphasize performance. We try to get students into the mindset that the practice and the journey on the dance floor is much more important than wearing fancy clothes and putting on makeup and getting to dance in front of people. Um, but at the same time, I think that performances are a really important time for dancers to be able to kind of hold a mirror up and see where they're at. It's this moment of reckoning, right? Um, that thing which I thought I knew really well didn't happen on the stage, so I guess I don't know it as well as I thought I did, right? Um, and But getting to support students in sharing where they are all at in their journey is very, very satisfying to me. Uh, in particular, getting to support um, two of my students perform short solos, Carrie McCune and Kelly Salagovic was really pl a pleasure. And, um, and another performance, a collaboration that we put on with a Denver-based Balinese gamelan, uh, Gamelan Tunis Makar. That was a really interesting collaboration um, for which we surprisingly had 700 people show up for the performance. That was actually nice. amazing. Um, so I think, you know, whether it's just a small performance for 20 people, we just had actually a very small performance for my graduate class um, on Hindustani music and maybe eight people showed up over Zoom. We just really wanted it to stay small because they yeah. had, were so early on in their learning. But that right. also, it was really a pleasure to see how much they've been able to gain in even 10 weeks in a quarter system kind of seminar. And I just have to say, I really appreciate and value the opportunities to teach and pass on a love mm -hmm. of these traditions. Awesome, I guess, and yeah, we'll come to we'll come to Denver real quick after this and learn all about what you're, okay. what you're doing there. But before that, a uh, quick segue again. So, because uh, you've talked about how dance changes through each generation, even the same instruction changes. Um, so I guess one thing I wanted to ask you, Sarachi, is like, what would you say your style of kathak is now? <laughs> My style is developing and evolving. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Sure. You know, this idea of um, one's dance style developing mm -hmm. even throughout one's lifetime is something I only started to understand after coming back to Boston from okay. training intensively with our Guruji. And I returned to, um, to dance again with Gretchen Hayden who trained in the 70s and 80s and 90s. And that way of moving in which she was trained, which lived and grew and developed in her artistry, in her body, that was really different than what was happening on the other coast to a certain extent. And so I started to understand that, you know, even two people who studied with the same guru, depending on their individual proclivities, depending on, um, what time 
of that guru's life they had trained, they could move in sometimes very significantly different ways, especially if like uh, Pandit Das, he was somebody who was always interested in evolving. He was continuing, he danced all the way up to the end. He continued to push the envelope of what Katak meant um, right. and explore and examine. So the challenge for me then when I, um, came to Denver, I started teaching. Um, I was still practicing as best as I could in those early tough years of trying to uh, get into a tenure track position in academia. Um, but then also the challenge of trying to keep up with a guru who is all the way in a different state, um, who is moving at such a, a fast speed was almost right. impossible. Um, so mm -hmm. I feel like right now I'm finally at a place where I am starting to really do that deep journey of self-discovery. Um, mm -hmm. On one hand, COVID has been um, useful. <laughs> I don't want to say that, but um, in that way exactly. But one of the silver mm -hmm. linings of all of this stay-at-home orders and et cetera has been that we are training online as a dance collective now regularly, twice a week, uh, multiple hours. And so um, this is a really good period for us to um, dive deep into our own exploration and to continue the process of self-discovery. I can't say like, this is what my style is because I don't ever want to become so fixed <laughs> in that way. Okay. Um, and mm -hmm. I want to try to follow in his footsteps in continuing to develop and grow and learn and dive deep into the art form. Okay. Understood. Yeah. Thank you for sharing what your thoughts on your style was. And now I guess I'd love to know about your, like the Surila dance company, your ensemble. I, I was in an Arabic ensemble and it up in grad school for like six months. Where was that? That was in Virginia Tech. Okay, great. Yeah. So that was fun. So I guess, yeah, I'd like, love to know about the work you do in Denver. So let's just start. With okay. That. So I um, started teaching at the University of Denver in 2006. Um, I was the first ethnomusicologist hired at a school of music that trains students in mainly Western art music and jazz. So um, that was a tall order. Um, somehow I was expected to represent the world, <laughs> which is impossible, obviously. Um, so some of the interesting challenge at that time in my life was to go from this place where I was so deep into studying and writing about Kathak and this lineage of Kathak and Hindustani music with Kansab to now I have to teach like a world music class. What does that mean? What do I cover? Um, so really expanding out again really quickly. I was really lucky that I got to immediately begin teaching an ensemble um, at, at my university. And it's mainly for, for all of these years been populated by um, students from the music school. Um, so mainly non-Indian, non-South Asian, um, non-South Asian American, and with really strong musical chops. So that's been fun because I get to introduce them to a completely different to them way of thinking about and approaching musicality that involves oral tradition, that involves you know concepts of rag and tal, 
that involves the body in the way that I like to teach them. So, you know, we're singing, we're reciting, we're dancing, we're doing all of these various things with the body and hopefully making them, um, giving them tools that will make them stronger musicians in whatever realm of musicianship they um, are primarily working. Um, that is, like I said, um, very enjoyable for me. Um, after a certain number of years, I had one batch, I would say, of students that were coming and taking part in the ensemble for multiple years, uh, multiple quarters, and were more invested than the typical student who just wanted to try something different for a quarter and then go back to everything else they were learning. Um, they wanted to study more. And I would say, especially um, Carrie McCune, she had heard that I was going to San Francisco for an annual retreat with our Guruji. And she took it upon herself to organize students to come with me. <laughs> I didn't press them. I didn't push them. And so three of them ended up going, Rebecca Mbritsky and Kaylee Salagobic and um, Carrie McCune came. And those were the first students from Denver who um, actually um, studied with the bigger community. Um, they actually received their gungru from our Guruji during that weekend and then had wow. an incredibly okay. intense weekend, um, both on okay. and off the dance floor, actually. He was very, our Guruji was really um, generous with his time because they had come from Denver because they were my very first students to come Saji, into the community. Quick, quick question mm -hmm. here. Uh, so just to draw a parallel uh, between the if you can, uh, the work, the first workshop you did, which you also called a very intense workshop, <laughs> and the weekend that you described as intensive now with your students, uh, could you tell us what the differences were between now and then? Um, well, my perspective was completely different. Uh -huh. <laughs> that first workshop right. on my end, I was the yes. one who was um, flailing around and trying to understand what was happening. First of all, that yes. workshop was only a couple of hours. They had right. already you know, had multiple, a year mm -hmm. plus of training with me. Then okay. because I knew that they were going to California, I started working with them privately at home oh. to prepare okay. them. And then from my perspective, I was holding my breath for most of the weekend, hoping that they mm -hmm. didn't, you know, um, say something very stupid that would embarrass me. <laughs> I see. That our Guruji would make fun of me for, for the, you know, remainder of his life <laughs> <laughs> okay i see so they were much better prepared than i was i'd like to okay. think um okay so because they had a coach in their sidelines yes. and okay that's amazing yes um but All that right. was an incredibly inspiring experience for them mm -hmm. and because of that they their um connection to katak deepened profoundly for which I am eternally grateful. Um, so they came back and we started conversations eventually about how to continue their dance training on a higher level. What was one thing that was challenging to me um, has been challenging in the university system is that every quarter I'm gonna get new students. I might have older students also. So how to integrate 
someone who's been studying for a year with someone who still has to learn, okay, these are the bulls of Tatkar. This is what bulls means, right? This is what teka means. This is the idea of tal, etc. And so to be able to train them on a higher level, um, we eventually decided to begin the Surila Academy of Kathak. I think there were there were two forces at play. One was wanting to give them a platform and a space to continue to develop as um, Kathak dancers and eventually as teachers. The other was, you know, for many years I got inquiries from um, community members in Denver and the the um, broader Front Range. Um, here in Colorado, saying, we we would really like to learn Kathak. And so, of course, I would say, you are more than welcome to come to my classes. Here are the times that they're offered. <laughs> but for anybody working, for anybody in school, um, the times were really prohibitive. And so to actually develop a school for um, the community at times that were possible for community members was really important. Um, two dancers in particular that I want to mention, Pallavi Salvi and, um, and Shilpi uh, Nikhil. Um, those two dancers were kind of um, contacting me a lot and wanting desperately to study. And so now they've been studying with me for about five years. And, um, and it's really, um, I think valuable and I'm, I'm very happy that I had the support I needed to start that school. Um, I already have a full-time job, right? I'm very, very fortunate in that, but starting a Kathak school was a very daunting idea for me at the time. And so I had a lot of support from dedicated students that helped make that happen. Awesome. And uh, yeah, I guess that kind of covers this and Surila and everything else. Yeah, can I add one more thing to that? Absolutely. Great. Um, So beyond the support of the local community, one thing that's Mm -hmm. really exciting to me now is that we have four locations, four sister schools working very closely together. Um, Chandam, Mm -hmm. which is our Guruji school that he founded in San Francisco, Leela in Los Angeles, also um, Leela New York um, uh, in Los Angeles. The artistic director is Rina Mehta in San Francisco, Sebi Lee and Rachna Nivas and Rachna Nivas running um, Leela NY in New York. Um, so we as co-founders of the Leela Dance Collective are also working together very closely in um, in supporting one another's schools. Now that we're in the time of COVID, we've actually joined all of our classes together online so that we can much more finely discriminate and discern um, classes by level. Um, So for example, we just had three classes going on each week here in Denver because we only had about 20, 25 students. And Mm -hmm. so people would be lumped into these classes who had a fairly wide range of of background and experience. And so now we have more than 25 classes running each week and we're really able to put people 
in with other dancers at their levels. And it's really exciting to see that dancers are making these very close connections with others um, from different locations. So my Denver students are getting a chance to develop close relationships with other teachers from the different locations, with other dancers from across the country. Usually that would only happen once a year when we would get together for an intensive, like a weekend long intensive. And those intensive themselves were extraordinarily um, mind opening to students to see the bigger picture of this community, to see dancers who are so much farther along in their Katak journey, all of those things. Um, but now to be able to do that on a weekly basis is having really profoundly positive impact on our community. Awesome, thank you for uh, yeah, sharing that. 25 classes a week seems amazing. Yeah. That kind of frequency in the US-based school is almost unheard of. Most of them are like kind of once a week. So that's really amazing. It is really amazing. And, <laughs> so and, and that, a question I'd missed asking you what I wanted to ask you about is, uh, yeah, so the question I wanted to ask you is about like, when you're talking about the portrayal of Pandit Jaji in your book, uh, what really stands out to me is that it's a, portray a portrayal of a human being who's supremely skilled and not a demigod. Mm. And so uh, was it, uh, so, um, and so when it came to that choice in writing your book, was it a hard choice to make, like to port portray him in a human manner compared to how gurus have been portrayed in other works? or how gurus are referred to in by Kathakas? Uh, yes and no. Um, mm -hmm. So on one hand, because this is um, a book published by an academic press, um, the audience is somewhat different, although I really wanted the audience for the book to include the Kathak community much more broadly, as well as a scholarly community. But there's no way that I could write a book that was just filled with praise uncritical praise. <laughs> right. And un and fortunately, our Guruji also wouldn't want that. In fact, he told me sometimes, you know, make this book controversial. <laughs> um, he said make this book controversial. Yeah, he wanted people to be captured by the drama. Okay. And in that sense, he, oh, he, wasn't, okay. he wasn't interested in me spinning lies about how amazing he was. <laughs> <laughs> um, in fact, there's a story in the book about a time in which um, there was a gungru ceremony in Berkeley and someone had strewn rose petals on the path leading up to the dance space. And for some right. reason that, that struck him as overly obsequious. And mm -hmm. he went on this lecture about he was not some guru ooh, type of person that should be revered. He's not like that. He's just a modern guru in training, as he always liked to say. He was a human right. being who was on the journey of learning what it meant to be a guru, who had an incredibly high um, esteem for that role and who always was continuing to try to be better at it. Um, so he didn't even call himself a guru until very, very late in life. He would say modern guru in training, or he would say, you know, he would have people call him Dadaji in the early years. Um, then people just started calling him Guruji, whether he wanted it or not. So that's just one aspect of how he was really open with his own journey and his own process. 
And because he was so open and because he wasn't afraid to be controversial, um, it what it isn't was in some ways freeing in the writing of the book. That said, it was also still an enormous challenge to try to portray some of the aspects of the training that were very hard, <laughs> um, that were very challenging, um, and to try to convey those things in honest an honest manner, but also in a compassionate manner. It's so easy to either put someone on a pedestal or decry them as a terrible human being, right? But the truth is often or always much more complicated than that. Yes, he was a very, very difficult person to study under. Yes, he asked an incredible amount from his students and his disciples. Yes, he made people cry. <laughs> yes, he also was enormously empowering. And all of those things can be true simultaneously. Very interesting, Sarahji. And yeah, thanks for putting it that way. Um, uh, yeah, as um, And I guess my final question to you, Sarahji, I guess looking at your life's work so far, it looks like you've lived multiple lives <laughs> in terms of how much you've gotten done in terms of being a performance artist, an ethnomusicologist, learning under the under Ghan Sahib and Pandit Chetrasaji, starting your own academy, being in this collective. So when it comes to like future work and like more, and you've left this impact on Kathak and I, I assume you still want to do more. So what is coming up for you? Well, it's very kind of you to say that I've left this impact. I'm, I'm still trying. I still feel mm -hmm. very early in that path <laughs> so um awesome um, does that mean more books i'm sorry does that mean you're uh, going to write more books um probably <laughs> okay that's awesome <laughs> actually i'm i'm doing some academic book right now which is quite different from um a guru's journey um editing okay. a volume with a friend and colleague of mine um, that's tentatively titled um, Music and Dance as Everyday South Asia. Mm -hmm. I'm really excited about this book because it has 34 contributors, um, all ethnomusicologists writing about an enormous diversity of music and dance practices in South Asia and in South Asian diasporas, including the U.S., but including the um, Tamil hip-hop community in um, in um, Malaysia. So we have this incredible variety of um, contributions that talk about the relationship of music and dance to other aspects of human experience. And I think that this book is going to impact the way that South Asia is taught in music classrooms across the United States and perhaps beyond. Um, like I said earlier, I took a class on Indian music when I was a freshman in college. That was 1991. Um, and it was basically classical music. So when I went to India, I thought that everybody listened to classical music. <laughs> now, of course, you know how ridiculous that is. Um, right. And it's going to help represent 
um, the multiplicity and the enormous diversity of musical practices and dance practices and the representation of that diversity in our classrooms. So I'm excited about that. Um, I also have some other projects underway that um, hopefully will take shape and I'll be able to talk about sometime soon. Um, but I just hope that, um, I hope to have the space and right now I'm feeling such enormous support from our community. Um, this dance school has grown way beyond me and, um, and that's enormously fulfilling. Um, you know, I've heard this expression, if you want to go fast, travel alone, but if you want to go far, travel together. And so coming together as a community, I think is enormously important for helping to ensure the perpetuation of this particular tradition of Kathak. Awesome. That's a great way to end it. <laughs> and yeah. So I would say uh, that that with that, I bring, bring it to the end of this episode. Uh, thanks a lot for coming. Learned a lot and some great moments in the podcast. I'm really happy that we were able to do this. Thank you. I'm so honored to be here. I appreciate your time. Mm-hmm.